You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Maureen Bisognano, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. She's also on the faculty of the Harvard School of Public Health. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Today we're going to be discussing improving quality in America's healthcare system. But before we get to that, could you tell me a little bit about the Institute for Healthcare Improvement? The Institute for Healthcare Improvement is a not-for-profit organization based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We're a relatively small organization that does research and development and education, but we've got a huge mission, and that is to improve healthcare worldwide. Who is your staff, and where do you get your funding? We have a staff of about 110 physicians, nurses, researchers, and assorted support staff located here in Cambridge. Our funding comes from dues that people pay, uh, subscriptions and fees that people pay to join our programs and services, and we use those funds to develop new knowledge and then share that broadly with everybody on our website, which is ihi.org. I know that Dr. Donald Borwick has been very involved in the founding of your company with you, but is there somebody else, a philosopher or a guru, that has been a driving force behind the vision of your company? Well, there are several. Tom Nolan is a statistician who's helped us to, to frame out the linkages between the rates of improvement, leadership, and, and process level change. We've also worked with Noriaki Kano, K-A-N-O, who's a Japanese quality expert, and he's helped us to think about different ways that cost and quality interact, the topic of our call today. Could you tell me something about his philosophy or his theories? Sure. Dr. Kano believes that there are three ways that cost and quality interact. Kano 1, I'll call it, is the interaction between cost and quality when there are defects in the care system. So when a patient, as an example, suffers from a decubitus ulcer or an infection, costs actually rise as a result of the complication. So in Kano 1, he says if you work on the defect, that is, decrease the complication, your costs will fall. Kano 2 is pure waste. It's all of the work that we do as a part of our everyday jobs that adds no value to the patient's outcome. And if you like, I can give you some examples of where waste shows up. It's not visible to us on a day-to-day basis because we get so involved in daily work that we no longer even see it. But there's great potential, I think, here for us to drive costs down by working just purely on waste. An example might be excessive duplication of documentation. I walk through nursing units, as an example, and watch nurses have to write or document the exact same thing in five different parts of the record because the physicians don't look in this section or the dietitians don't have access to that section. The pharmacists look someplace else. We see wasted time in motion. We actually watched patients journey through a hospital and see that they actually travel miles and meet dozens of people aside from the doctors and nurses who are caring for them because we haven't really coordinated and designed the process of care in a way that makes life easier for the physicians and for the patients. Is this similar to what we call bundling, that you set up a bundle of things so that there is no duplication? In some cases it is. So bundling is an example of where we can create a process that has five steps and the doctors and the nurses begin to perhaps use multidisciplinary rounds to carry out those five steps and to create a daily goal for the patient. What we find when these kind of bundles are applied in many cases is that it drives down 
an example would be it drives down uh, call lights on the nursing unit. It is even driving down clinical complications like falls, pressure sores, pain management problems, and it's decreasing the number of calls that a nurse needs to make for clarification to a physician. So all around, patients are finding that they're getting better outcomes as the work level actually decreases. It's a different way to think about work. And the old way of run faster, run harder, find out more, it just isn't working for physicians or nurses on the care settings. You know, you mentioned another topic just now about moving through the hospital, i.e. the flow that exists in a hospital. And I think no place better than in the emergency room do we see the bottlenecks that evolve. Are you doing anything about this particular area? It's a very complicated problem to fix, but nonetheless, we are seeing some great results from organizations that are working with IHI around the country on this. Interestingly, In years past, when an organization recognized that they were suffering more emergency department diversions or long delays and perhaps harm to patients in the emergency department because of those delays, they began to try and work in the emergency department to fix those processes. But our research is showing us that, in fact, the root cause of that problem is elsewhere, most particularly in the way that elective operating room cases get scheduled. So we need to go way upstream and to look at bottlenecks that are occurring elsewhere in the system. And by fixing those, we're seeing dramatic improvements in emergency department flow. Are you able to get people to buy into the system? Sure. It requires change and it requires leadership. And it's, it's a place where we're seeing uh, some clinical innovators come forward to work with leaders. And when the board of trustees of the organization is on board with these kind of changes, we're starting to see major changes in scheduling, in routines, even something as uh, simple as looking at how can we get patients discharged home sooner by thinking about discharge planning, not even on admission, but before admission. You'd mentioned that Dr. Kano had three principles, and I think we only covered the first two. I didn't want to shortchange him. What, what is the third? The third one is to dramatically improve quality such that the product is so innovative or it stands out by its quality features so much that you can even attract new market share or attract a higher price. There's an example I would give you from Geisinger Medical Clinic in Pennsylvania where they've dramatically improved their clinical processes for patients with cardiac surgery. And in doing so, they looked at how many complications they could avoid. And they went out and made a promise. They call it proven care to an HMO and said, we will give you a guaranteed price. And the price is a little bit higher than the standard price, but it's a lot lower than any patient would need to pay for a complicated care. They can make this promise. They can call it proven care because they've improved their reliability and quality so much for their cardiac services that they're able to make a guarantee on price because they have driven complications down so much. Well, it goes without saying that healthcare organizations may be reluctant to implement improvement unless they see some kind of increased payment or at least the status quo. Do you have any data that you can show healthcare organizations that quality is in their best interest? You know, I'm not a firm believer that improving your payment is the right way to drive quality. I much prefer your premise, which is it's the right thing to do for the patient. But we do have some national examples. The first is a demonstration project that was conducted by Premier, the group purchasing organization, with CMS, and it's called the Hospital Quality Improvement Demonstration Project. 
they selected five diagnoses, and they told the hospitals, there were about 250 of them that joined, that in these five diagnoses, the hospitals that were able to get into the top decile or the second decile of performance on 30 different indicators would get an additional payment, a bonus payment, so to speak, for achieving high levels of quality. What we saw over the three years of the project is that, on average, the hospitals improved in every one of the 30 dimensions every single quarter for three years, and some hospitals did achieve a bonus payment. They weren't huge. They were less than a million dollars for even the highest one, but it was an incentive for all of the senior leaders to come together and say, there's another driver aside from the obligation we have to patients in order to do this. We're also seeing now on the other side CMS say we're not going to pay for never events, and that's also in the opposite direction, a driver for clinicians and senior leaders to come together and say we've got to make improvements in care. Very often when looking at a business model, they try to divide it into what one would call a business case, an economic case, and a social case. Many times when looking at things like smoking, shall we say, or better diabetic management, the real improvement is downstream, maybe many years after the patient has left his initial carrier who has made the investment. How do you convince the business community that the long-term benefits, even dollar-wise, may not happen initially, but is in the future? Well, there is an assumption there that the participants in the particular insurance plan are going to turn over, and I do believe that that's within the control of the company. I think it's to everybody's benefit to try and create a plan that's sticky, that is, so to speak, that the participants in the plan see such value that they don't turn over during an open enrollment period, and therefore the plan doesn't have to go through the expense of trying to always recruit new members to take the place of the ones that departed. The ones that are departing now on a voluntary basis exceed the number who are moving out of the plan area and the like, and I think we're going to see increasingly sophisticated consumer shopping in this area. So I would say take the long view and work to try and retain the members for a longer period of time. That's going to make your payment on smoking cessation or obesity prevention pay off much sooner. Well, I do want to thank Maureen Bisognano for joining us today. She's been our guest, and we've been discussing quality issues in the American healthcare system. She is from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.